Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit might be a better title. Chapter 4, and I'm going to take you through from verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 16. I was not sure that all that rice was going to go in there. So, maybe the Lord has to strengthen my faith, huh? I'm glad that it did, though, and I totally trusted in Luella, even though I'm not sure all the rice would go in. This morning, I'm going to talk about uh, how husband and wife went astray in a big way, Ananias and Sapphira. It's not an easy message. It's not all doom and gloom. I'll bring some positive things that God is doing, was doing in his church, how Satan would come and try to hurt the church. So we're going to be seeing something of satanic strategy this morning, and then how God would move his church forward after dealing with sin in the church. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. All of this is possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died for us, rose from the dead, and is ministering in heaven. And we pray, Lord, that soon he will come back. But while we're here, Lord, we have a tremendous privilege and responsibility to walk in the Spirit, to to make decisions that will honor and glorify you, and to try and understand your plan, Lord, how your kingdom needs to expand. We know, Lord, that you want everybody to be saved. Give us that kind of burden too. So bless us through your spirit this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. As we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, Verse 32, I've entitled this section, Heavenly Fellowship. This, along with a a section in the end of chapter 2, is about as close as the church gets to heaven while we're still on earth. It says there, all the believers were what? One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet." One of the first things we have to notice in this passage 
is that just a few people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Are you, are you with me this morning? What does the scripture say? Little three-letter word right at the beginning of the NIV translation. All the believers were in one heart, one mind. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. God's plan for his church is to so fill every member with the Holy Spirit that the church can make great progress. We have a church here in North America, Seventh-day Adventist Church in North America, that is not making great progress. Hence the need of an emphasis on revival and reformation, which some of you have been hearing about. Here we are seeing revival. Here we are seeing reformation. We saw it in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Most of you can remember something of that. We're seeing it again in chapter 4. It is always God's plan to fill the church with his spirit so it can move forward. It's like winds in the sail moving that yacht through the water. That's his plan. But Satan also has a plan. And Satan's plan is to slow down, to thwart, to even destroy the work of God if he possibly can do that. And so we see that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. It actually says that in verse uh, 31. Let's back up a little bit. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, very similar to what we read in chapter 2. So there wasn't, in a sense, in a sense there is just one Pentecost. You have to start somewhere. But it's always God's plan throughout the rolling centuries, as long as time should last, to fill his church with the Spirit. It's the greatest need of the Seventh-day Adventist church. No amens on that one? You don't believe that? What's the greatest need of the Seventh-day Adventist church? More money? More talented pastors? More lay involvement? There's lots of things we could say. The greatest need is this infilling of the Holy Spirit. And if, and if, we, if we understand anything from the book of Acts, we should conclude that a Spirit-filled church is a healthy church, a holy church, a church that is moving forward and fulfilling God's plan for it. So we see in these verses, I'm going to go through them quickly, all were filled with the Spirit. When somebody is filled with the Spirit, they speak the word how? Not timid. I'm not really sure if I believe this or not. But boldly, with confidence. Somebody who is bold and confident is bold and confident in Jesus. They may not understand every prophetic nuance in Scripture. I'm sure that the apostles did not. We certainly don't today. But that's got nothing to do with, speak, with speaking boldly about what the, the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's another thing for Seventh-day Adventists to take into consideration. Let's lay our focus a spirit-filled focus is always on Jesus Christ. A spirit-filled focus is not always on the Holy Spirit. 
It's, on, it's an interpreting the Christ event, seeing the significance of that. It says in verse 33 that great, they had great power to testify. So that's something else we look for, from the Holy Spirit. Great power, uh, whether it be miracles, which we're going to hear about, signs, wonders, uh, preaching. It really doesn't matter what it is. Sharing what they had. It is all the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Believers, verse 32 we're of one heart and one mind, we have a divided Seventh-day Adventist church. We're divided between the conservatives and the liberals. Terms that I detest and that divide God's people. We're, div we're divided on how we should worship. We're divided on many, many issues. Do what you can to bring unity in God's church. Jesus prayed for that in John 17. It's, a, it's an evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit. Little Holy Spirit, disunity. Much Holy Spirit, great unity. No one claimed any of his possessions were his own. Have we got an early form of communism here? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. What we have are believers that have possessions, but they treat their possessions as though they were not their own. There's a willingness to share. There's a willingness to help the poor, the needy. Some of these new converts would have been probably thrust out of their homes, cut off from society or the society that they knew up to that point. Some of them paid a heavy price for following Jesus Christ. And we find in this account... And as we go into chapter 5, that they, they had a method. And the method was, let's say you had a summer house. Let's say you had um, a yacht that wasn't being used, didn't need to be used. You sold it. A field, you sold it. Barnabas, he sold a field, right? And he brought the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles who would distribute as needed. It also says that um, they shared everything they had, verse 32, much grace was upon them all, also an evidence of, when it says grace, we can, we can interpret that in many different, different ways. Uh, the goodness, the blessing of God was upon them. No needy persons among them, they distributed as needed, verses 34 and 35. And then it introduces us to Barnabas, one of my favorite characters in Scripture called the Son of Encouragement. And it, it, it introduces him, it mentions him later in the book. This is the way that Luke writes his, his, his material. He'll, he'll suddenly bring Paul in, but then he won't write about Paul until later in the book. Now he's bringing Barnabas in. And Barnabas did something right. He owned something that he was willing to sell and he brought all of the proceedings, uh, the, the, the profit of that, and gave it to those, through the apostles, to those in need. Now we see something different. So this filling of the Spirit, this sharing, whether it be proclamation with your goods or whatever, is all in evidence, and unity, all in evidence of this Holy Spirit. Now we're going to see something different. We're going to see sin in the camp. We're going to see... A first century Achan, 
If you can remember that story in the book of Joshua. Sin in the camp or broken fellowship. That's what Satan's strategy was. First, he would bring persecution. So if you read back further in chapter 4 and 3, you'll see persecution. That's one of Satan's methods. That method rarely works. Don't know why he still tries it. It rarely, rarely, rarely works. But he has other means. So if he can't hurt the church from outside, he can certainly hurt the church from where? Inside. Which is the greatest threat, outside or inside? Ah, inside. Absolutely. So, we pick it up in chapter 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Obviously, this is being contrasted with what Barnabas did. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept part, back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Has Satan ever filled your heart so that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? What are we talking about here? Is this the unpardonable sin? And you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Yes or no? Yes. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Yes or no? Yes. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to who? God. Which, by the way, is a pretty clear description of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Almighty God. We believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each one of them is fully God. There is not a lesser, smaller God. There's only one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here we are talking about the Holy Spirit. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. It always gets your attention when someone dies in church. And usually we think of that's a pretty good place to die. But somehow, some way, that thought doesn't come into my head when I read this story. What do you think the sin really is here? As I've read this story and thought about it quite a lot, and by the way, Ellen White does have a section in Acts of the Apostles, which is, is uh, I'd encourage you to read that, her interpretation. Um, but to get down to what the sin really is, we, we know this hypocrisy here for sure. And that is a great sin. Pretending, pretending maybe that we're more spiritual than we really are. The sin of hypocrisy. We know that there's the sin of lying. We know that there is deception, which is very much satanic. Don't you think so? 
that's certainly a word that I would use alongside of Satan, deception. We can see that in, in the Garden of Eden. It's quite possible, we can only conjecture on some of this interpretation. It's quite possible that, like a vow had been made here, a statement had been made that Ananias and Sapphira were going to basically do what Barnabas did. Whatever, whatever the profit is for this piece of land, it's going to be handed in. Now, it doesn't tell us all the information in the text. It doesn't give us any indication in the text that what Ananias and Sapphira, the, 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 the thought process in it was any, in any way good. It doesn't give us that impression, does it? It gives us the impression, even though it doesn't give us all the information, it gives us the impression, the way it's written, that there is deception, that there is hypocrisy, that there is lying going on. And then this sudden judgment which just takes your breath away. And there are other examples in Scripture, other examples in the book of Acts of sudden judgment. I've already mentioned one from the book of Joshua, clearly being told that the, the treasure that was was left there, was, was to be dedicated to God. Most of you can remember the story. And, and Achan thought something different. And his family were involved in that sin. This isn't God just suddenly pouncing on someone here. We could interpret it that way, but it would be a wrong interpretation. It's, it's people deliberately thinking things through and being deceptive. So if the vow is made to the Lord, the vow is made maybe before the congregation, and then you're doing something on the side without telling the congregation. Now to come to the congregation and say, we did promise to give whatever, but we have, you know, and give a little bit of honest explanation um, would be more acceptable than trying to deceive everybody. There is covetousness in this sin. And God in his wisdom decided to not allow that to happen. It had to be exposed. This is a young fledgling, there's a lot of people, thousands of people coming into the church. There's a lot of immaturity. There's a lot of lack of understanding and knowledge of scripture. And so God in his wisdom is not going to allow these new converts to be led astray and for people to think that God is not really in our midst when he so obviously was and that he is going to allow lying, deception, covetousness, and hypocrisy to just wink at it. It's not going to happen. So it cost this man his life. Did it cost him his eternal life? Well, the text doesn't tell us, does it? Ellen White does, but the text doesn't. Hence your homework. Read Acts of the Apostles. I'll tell you this. Lots of preachers cannot deal with that it cost uh, Ananias his eternal life. 
And then it says um, in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What happened to um, Sapphira, the wife? Is she involved in this? Well, the text tells us that she was involved in this. Um, let me finish off this section on verse 5. Ananias heard this. He fell down and died. Great fear seized all that heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward. And this is a, a good way of getting your young people involved in the church. They wrapped up his body and they carried him out and buried him. Now, I don't know how long that took to do that. But it says here, three hours later, his wife came in. Now, three hours late for church, folks, is not going to cut it. But three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Now, I don't know how you would sell property and people wouldn't know. It seems that God has given some gift of discernment to Peter here. At least I would interpret it that way. But she says, yes. Good answer or bad? Bad. Really, really bad answer. Yes, she said, that is the price. But she knew better. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out. They'd never been so busy in their lives. And buried her beside her husband. And then it repeats this. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I'm not going to end the sermon there. I'm going to bring out a few lessons on what I see as important in this section. And then I'm going to take you from verse 11 to verse 16, which is uh, a little bit more positive and lays more of an emphasis, not on Satan and what he is doing. He's brought persecution from outside. He's, he's bringing the sin of covenous deception, hypocrisy, lying from the inside. Both are part of his strategy to hurt the young church. Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall go into all the world. And we're, here we're seeing the beginnings of it. Churches being raised up, filled with the Holy Ghost, and everybody is being blessed. The church is firing on all cylinders. And so Satan sees that, can't stop it with persecution. They, they would often say the blood of Christians is like seed, just makes the gospel grow faster and faster. And so we bring in sin from inside the church. One of the first things I want to mention is the seriousness of sin, the gravity of sin. There are not small sins and big sins. There are not little white lies and big lies. So Arnold has been in trouble, right? 
big sins or little sins. It's pretty bad when it destroys your family, right? Never mind what it's done to his wife, but can you see the deception? One year, two years, ten years? The deception, the hypocrisy, all of those elements are there. But we don't need to point the finger at Arnold. We need to point the finger at ourselves. And make sure that if we're playing around with sin, if there are these kinds of sins in our lives of deception, hypocrisy, covetousness, whatever, we've got to get them out. We've got to expose those things. We want a church at Anderson. What do we want a church? Do we want a church at Anderson that's limping along? Or do we want a church that's going forward with power? And, and this power, this purity that's in the church, this presence of the Holy Spirit, some people say, whoa, maybe those that are not wholehearted say, I don't think I'll go to the Anderson church. And yet, even though there was this great fear, are we encouraged to fear God? Ah, tricky question, Pastor. In one sense, yes, we are. But it's fear in the sense of reverence. It's fear in the sense of respect. It's fear in the sense of, okay, if we're having communion together or an agape feast, we're not just going to have the rich sat on one end of the table and the poor sat on the other and the rich just eat their rich food and the poor have almost nothing. That's not the way to conduct church. And in the book of Corinth, we have God disciplining the church because of things like that or because of a, a frivolous attitude in worship. And of course, we've developed... Um, a God, a North American God, 21st century God, who is our buddy-buddy. Well, maybe that's a healthy corrective in some respects. We don't want Almighty God just out there so we can't get close to Him, do we? And yet He is Almighty God. There should be an awe there. There should be a respect there. And when there is an evidence of a person being filled with the Spirit, that is one of the characteristics. We studied about Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he say? Buddy, buddy. Oh, woe is me. I am a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That is getting the correct perspective. God could do something for him when he had that perspective. And so there has to be a balance. The intimacy which I think is one of the greatest, greatest contributions of Christianity. The intimacy, the closeness, Jesus says, I call you friends, is tremendously important. And yet it has to be balanced with this sense of respect and awe that we are talking and, and dealing with and having Almighty God dwelling within us. And of course, most of you know texts like that uh, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can't play fast and loose with God. 
So take seriously sin. And if you have a problem with that, which many of us do, then ask God to help you to hate sin. That's a, that's a good prayer. Not just to stop sinning. That's not what I'm saying. Do you hear what I'm saying? But to hate it in your heart. That's very different. And that's a tremendous sign of maturity when you can move in that direction. Keep a, keep a clean conscience. If there's something bothering you in your conscience, get it out with God. Ask Him to show you what's happening there, what's going on. The Bible talks about an oversensitive conscience in the epistles of John. Very interesting passage there. Also, the necessity of church discipline. As I was doing my research for this, this study this morning, I read about one gentleman who had a, a friend who was a Baptist pastor. The Baptist pastor finds that the, the church treasurer is embezzling the church funds. So the pastor goes to the treasurer and, asks the tre and confronts the treasurer and asks the treasurer to pay back the money that he had, em he had embezzled and he wouldn't call the, the pastor wouldn't call the police. What do you think the treasurer said? No way, Jose. He's not going to pay it back. So the police were called and the church members turned against the pastor. And the pastor left the ministry never to return. So church discipline doesn't always, even when you do the right thing, many church members do not understand the significance of church discipline. And again, church discipline, you can obviously go to extremes in church discipline, but it is part and parcel. We can see God doing the discipline here. Through the prophet Peter, we can see the importance of healthy church discipline. And it should always be redemptive church discipline. You're not trying to hurt people. You're not trying to make a bad situation worse. You're trying to redeem a situation. Grace is never a cover for sin. Great grace, much grace, was upon these people. What a tremendous privilege. Many people are fasting and praying for experiences like this, for this kind of thing to happen to God's church. Here it's actually happening. You can feel the presence of God everywhere but it's not a cloak for sin. Whenever we talk about salvation, righteousness by faith, justification by faith, these books that I have told you to read, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Jesus spoke a lot about righteousness by faith, and nowhere in Jesus' writings, in Paul's writings, do you ever find that grace will cover sin. Sin needs to be exposed, 
pulled out, exposed for what it is. That does not mean to say that when you see sin in another brother or sister, you and I should try and humiliate them. Jesus told us in Matthew 18 how to do that, this church discipline the proper way. We rarely follow that. I'm not talking so much about the Anderson Church. I'm talking more in general in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've seen some people nailed to the wall for trivi trivial things. And then I've seen others, including pastors, get away with the equivalent of murder. So again, we need this filling with the Spirit to know how to deal with sin when it's in the church. Well, I'm sure you have, if your brain is ticking over this morning, there's a lot of questions come out of this passage. But I want to move on. And I want to end up in uh, verse, go through verses 11 through 16. And we'll see what God is doing after this. If we're interpreting this, that Peter was in the wrong, God was in the wrong, easy to do that then I think these verses bring a little bit of balance in here. Chapter 5, verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So if you just had that verse, you think nobody's going to join the church. When you have church discipline, that's the end of it. People just get scared off. Well, verse 14 says, no. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, genuinely believed in the Lord, and were added to their number. And as a result, here's the results of it all. People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Now, does he have a special shadow or something? No, this is, maybe there was superstition here, maybe there were traditions, I don't know. All of the ins and outs of that, all I know is God is at work. It could be a handkerchief of Paul's. It could be a shadow of Peter's. It could be a look. It could be a word spoken. God is at work healing everybody. Can you imagine the impact that that made? You talk about trying to find a winning formula for evangelism. You got it right here, folks. Spirit-filled people, let God work. Don't try and box him in. Let him work any way he wants. And get out of the way or go along for the ride is even better. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And there is a distinction made by Dr. Luke, the physician between certain types of sickness and mental illness. But whatever it was that ailed these people, how many of them were healed? All of them. All of them were healed. I don't know how hard it is for you. I think it's a little hard for, for some of us to really believe that God was right in dealing with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. It's important to get the right picture of God. Here we're getting an insight into God that we don't normally spend much time talking about. Yes, we talk about the second coming of God, 
of Jesus Christ. But we rarely talk about that in terms of judgment. But it is a phase of judgment. There is judgment going on in heaven. Doesn't Jesus have his rewards with him when he comes? There's a judgment going on in heaven. Whatever you're going to name that, it's like a phase of judgment. But then there's also a, a different phase of judgment when he comes to give those rewards. And that sometimes is called the executive judgment. God is executing judgment in favor of the saints. That's what Daniel teaches, in favor of the saints. That's good judgment, or as against negative judgment, as against the wicked. And in a sense, it's all good judgment because it's God's judgment. But for human beings, some of it is, naked, uh, is negative, not naked, <laughs> negative. They will be found naked spiritually. And, and important to understand righteousness by faith Judgment given in favor of God's people. We have not always brought out that aspect, that assurance aspect that's there very strong in Scripture that if you're walking with Jesus Christ, you should have the assurance that God is with you, is for you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, Jesus says. But it is a solemn passage. And it gives us a tremendous insight into the workings of the early Christian church. And I would suggest to you, in conclusion, that this is a picture of God's people that is, is hard to beat in Scripture. It's about as good as it gets in the early Christian church. And I do believe in my heart, some people say, well, you can't. You can't replicate these things. I believe that God has given these pictures of God working in the early church, and of course Satan working too. He's given us these pictures so that you and I understand what God's will is for the church and what, and what makes the church strong and what makes the church weak. And, it, and it, should, it should, if we're understanding it, it should get us to examine our hearts. It's a solemn message. It's a solemn thing to follow Jesus Christ and take his name upon your lips. It's not a cheap thing, an easy thing. I've had people that, that want to continue in their sin. I'm sat down with them. They want to continue in their sin. They're committing terrible sins, and they want to continue in that. And I said, that's not the way of Jesus. But somehow they think it's the way of Jesus. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. It might be North American Christianity. It might be Hollywood Christianity. But it's not biblical Christianity. It's not godliness. That's what God has called us to. To be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not taking advantage of people. In any way, shape, or form. But that like God, we want to do just the best for them. Let's pray. Father, examine our hearts this morning. We thank you and we praise you that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But Lord, this is not a cover for sin. So whatever there is, Lord, in our lives, expose the negative things. Help us to get them out on the table. Be honest with you. Be transparent with you. And Lord, may we do everything we can 
to build up the body of Christ. And may he return soon. In his name we pray. Amen.